Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey friends, this fourth episode of our podcast is another recording of the proclamation of the word from worship. This last Sunday we dealt with themes of suffering in light of the story of Job, connecting it to a reading in Hebrews where we're told about the supremacy of Christ and what that has to do with suffering, and then the final reading is a gospel reading where Jesus is speaking about divorce and marriage. This is one of the harder topics to preach about. It's very countercultural, a lot of feelings involved with it. However, my particular approach to preaching does not allow for me to skirt around issues or avoid talking about them. So forgive me for any ways in which I am ungracious or um, off the ball in how I talk about this stuff, but I hope it's helpful. Um, There's a lot more I wish I could say. A lot of good books have been written about marriage and divorce, and of course, Uh, The culture around us is a testimony about um, perhaps what is flawed in our understanding about what marriage is and is supposed to be. So anyway, um, if nothing else, I hope this is an occasion for you to meditate and reflect on um, suffering and your relationships, and that it, of course, results in your growing closer to Jesus. So God bless you as you attend upon his word with me. Our first reading is uh, quite long. We always go by the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a set of four readings that have been designated, I think, 40, 50 years ago. Just make sure that we cover a vast span of the the scriptures. We cover the things that make us uncomfortable. A lot of preachers just preach on what they want to preach about. Make sure that pastors are preaching on the full witness of scripture. Today we're reading the first two chapters of Job. It had us doing the second chapter after his greatest losses. There, There are two cycles of loss in the Job story right at the beginning and at the tail end of them Job pours out knowledge for us to consider in our response to suffering in this life. Uh, The reading was too long for me to put on somebody else so I'm going to read through it. There's not a lot of preaching to be done. Well there is but I'm not going to do it. The the things that I wanted us to carry as we're going through this, we're not going to be able to nitpick every little thing. I wanted us to be looking at how loss is not a reflection of God being angry with Job. So there is a very common theology passed around America where if God is unhappy with you, you're poor, you're miserable, you're sick, he's, he's punishing you. And then if he's happy with you, you're rich, you're healthy, you have everything you want. It's usually called prosperity gospel. And that's a heretical doctrine. It's not, it's not something that comes from the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture is that when God loves you, he doesn't keep you from suffering. Sometimes he's the agent of your suffering, and it's, he's with you in the suffering, he leads you out of the suffering, and he draws you closer to himself in suffering. And many of you who have gone through times of trial have found that God has walked with you and brought you closer with him. Suffering doesn't feel good, but it can be good, like chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is awful, but it removes cancer Likewise, suffering removes from us our idols that would otherwise poison us and drag us into hell. Um, Job suffers greatly um, for other reasons. So let's just go ahead and dive in. This is Job chapter 1, verse 1, verses chapter 2, verse 10, which uh, begins on page 784 in your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. 
In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So, time out. Does Job love his children? Yes, he's killing an animal for each one of them every day to blot out their sins. That's how the Jewish system of atonement worked. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, this is something where people get hung up sometimes. Why on earth would Satan, the first rebel against God, the one trying to ruin God's plans, why would he be welcome in God's holy abode? In this story, Satan functions as kind of a prosecuting attorney. In other places in Scripture, he's called the uh, accuser. He's called the... Um, what's it when you speak falsely about somebody? It's a charge we have. It's well, libel's in writing. What's the one when you speak it? Slanderer. Satan's called the, Satan's called the slanderer. And it's his role in heaven's, uh, God's heavenly court to slander and accuse us. And it's the system that's been designed. I had someone stay after worship a couple weeks ago and ask me, why would God create Satan knowing all things, knowing that Satan would rebel against him? And the answer to that is unsatisfying. And one, it really is God is glorified in this current scheme. If there is to be a rebellion, Satan is to be the head of it, and God's purposes will not be thwarted by Satan. Satan is time and time again humbled and beaten down by God, and in the end will be thrown in the lake of fire and destroyed along with everything else that doesn't glorify God. But in the meantime, Satan's been given a role to play, and he plays it. He plays it here with Job. It's a prosecuting attorney. He's accusing Job. He's slandering Job, and we'll see what comes of it. Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land, but now... Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. 
It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. I don't care about the animals, but that one always hurts me real bad. Verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Okay, so that's the end of the first cycle. He's lost all his property. He's lost all of his children. He hasn't lost his wife. We'll hear from her in a second. But what does he do whenever he hears about all this? He shaves his head. He tore his robe. But he didn't shake his fist at God. He didn't question God. Why, God? He worshipped the Lord. He said, I came into the world naked. I'm going to go naked. The Lord gives. He takes away. Blessed be the Lord. We'll come back to that. Chapter 2, verse 1. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to, his, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we escape? Shall, sorry, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard to say thanks be to God to that when it makes you think, well, okay, how am I supposed to respond to suffering in my life? Now, I, don't, I think it's a little egocentric for some people sometimes to think that God is bargaining with Satan about me individually. Oh, God is saying, oh, Jeffrey is so faithful. Satan, have you seen him? And Satan's saying, well, let me just punish him. I don't think that's what's going on. I think the story of Job is about Job. However, do people that the Lord loves go through times of suffering? Absolutely. Last week I was talking about believers in Afghanistan going through times of great persecution. Many of them are being killed. Many of them are abducted and tortured. Many of the young ladies are abducted and married to uh, 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 Taliban fighters who make them renounce their faith and have children against their will. Is this because the Lord does not love those Christians? Is it because that Afghani Christians did something more evil than American Christians and God is punishing them and, and we get to live easy? No, I, I think that's a ridiculous thing to believe. I just think that's patently false. What are some other scriptures that guide us here? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's in Hebrews. It's stated more than, twi more than once, I think twice. The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. You know, there are times when I know that Susanna is strong enough to do something. She says, Daddy, I can't do this. And I say, yes, you can, and you will. 
You know, Jesse, same way. He hates cleaning up the, he loves making a mess. He hates cleaning it up. He's three years old. He can clean his, his, his mess. You know, God is, is uh, the ultimate father. And he knows that when we are in Christ, when we have his Holy Spirit in us, we can go through hard times. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, is there any reason why you cannot go through a hard time? Are you really so fragile that, that you can't go through it? I think the fragility that we see on the part of most people is people who don't have that hope in Christ Jesus, who don't have that Holy Spirit within them. Now, am I saying that we should desire to go through hard times and bring hard times willingly upon ourselves? No. Right there, we have a stained glass window of Jesus in Gethsemane saying, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to suffer if unnecessary. However, he does say, but if it be your will, then let it be so. And that's the distinctly Christian posture. We don't run to suffering, but when it comes for us, we don't run away. Another scripture, beginning of James, James chapter 1. Brothers, whenever times of suffering and trial come upon you, consider it nothing but joy. Because suffering and trial will work its full effect to build patience. And let patience, not patience, perseverance. And let perseverance build its full effect in you so that you can be perfect and holy and complete in everything. When trials come along, we should be joyful because we're going to see how powerful God is. He's going to be glorified in us, and we are going to be stronger than we were before. Sometimes Susanna gets hurt, and from an early age, I taught her, I say, Susanna, what does pain do? She says, it goes away, and it makes me stronger. And she doesn't like saying that while she's in pain, but once the pain subsides, what's left is she is stronger and made whole. And that's what we will find. Some of us will go through lives, you know, what's really hard is people with chronic pain conditions who are in pain for months, if not years. And our inclination is just to take the pain away. But there's wisdom in pain. And there's wisdom in the darkness. But it's a question of if we're going to let that wisdom prevail or if we're going to let our selfishness prevail. If we shake our fist at God and say, God, why? and we resent God and we turn against him, then we're not getting any better. But if we know that God walks with us through the suffering, that he is standing on the other side of the suffering, that he rewards us for the suffering and he builds us up through the suffering, well, then we will find that it's a great treasure to suffer. And I understand I give this sermon from a, great, a place of great privilege. I was doing a, uh, a sermon at a funeral yesterday. A lady who grew up, her mother died from going into labor with her. Her father couldn't take care of her. He was so distraught at his, his wife dying. And then she had a twin brother who also died with her. She was born a preemie. She had grew up first seven months in a, a shoebox. When she was finally healthy enough um, to be raised, family had to come and get her. She was tossed uh, between family members for five years. And they finally sent her to an Indian school where she was raised the rest of her life until she was 18. And uh, that means she had no parental figures. She had no one to tuck her in at night. She had no one to model being a wife, being a mother. And yet she decided to become a wife and a mother and had a family and was bold in her life. It was just, just a remarkable thing. And I hold my life up against hers and I say, I have not suffered compared to this woman. I've, I've, had, I've had hard times, but I, you, know, you set me against her and I can just shut up. And that's what happens with Job at the end of Job. He brings his case to God and he says, I didn't deserve this. Why did you bring it to me? And God has three chapters of just tearing into him. Where were you when I created the heavens and earth? Oh, you think you're in a position to judge me. Who do you think you are? And at the end, Job just has to sit silent. Because we cannot question God. I mean, that's the long and short of it. Who are we to question God? 
If God is not sovereign, if God is not good, then go ahead and question him. But why is he worth worshiping? Why are we even here? Why would we worship a God who's not good? But if God is categorically good, if he is the source of all the good that we have, if he is the one putting a hedge of protection around us, then we can trust him in the bad times, can we not? Job here, he has, he has pieces of wisdom. He says, I came here naked, I'm going to leave naked. The Lord gives, he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then when his wife uh, comes at him, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? That's quite a piece of wisdom, isn't it? You know, when, uh, when my kids get sick, they're not a lot of fun. You know, they're puking, I have to clean up all their messes. You know, that, that Clementine, I'm changing dirty diapers every day. I'm going to take the cute part of Clementine and not the dirty. You know, this makes sense to us in family relationships. You understand when you love somebody, you take the good and the bad with them, right? That's an easy right, right? So why would it be any different from God? Why would we feel entitled to only receive good from God and not bad? Why do we feel like he should just be showering blessings upon us all the time and not chastening us and punishing us and, and making us stronger? Why, why is that the one one-way relationship and all the others get to have both ways? I think we often hold God to an unfair standard. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be healthy, happy, pure, and holy, and complete. And you don't get people there by just spoiling them all the time. Am I going to have a healthy, holy, happy daughter if I'm feeding her ice cream three meals a day? I'm going to have a diabetic, miserable daughter. I don't want that for her. God doesn't want that for you and me. He chastens and disciplines the ones whom he loves. He needs us fit. He needs us ready. He needs us strong. He doesn't need anything. We need it, and that's what he does for us. There are hard times coming for Christians generally. There are hard times coming for you and me individually. When they come, God deserves people who step up rather than step out. You understand what I'm saying here? There are people who feel sorry for themselves. Something bad happens, and all of a sudden they disappear. They're no longer with you. They're no longer sitting here in the pews. God didn't do for them the way they thought they deserved. They don't want to be here anymore. God is good all the time, and all the time. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good morning. Our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, then chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which begins on page 1860 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is, is superior to others. We must pay the most cautious, careful attention, therefore, to see what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken 
through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I already did the bulk of the preaching that needs to get done on this. The prevailing image of humans throughout the world is that we are another kind of animal, given feelings and lusts that we need to answer to, otherwise things are going to go wrong. It's a Freudian view of humanity that that it's bad to not act on our sinful impulses, that we need to act on our sinful impulses, otherwise we're harming ourselves and others. It's a lie from the evil one. Um, there's a comedian I like who is making fun of his Irish father. He says, like a good Irish father, he bundles up his feelings and then one day he dies, you know? And uh, that's not exactly what we encounter in Christ Jesus. What happens with us is the Holy Spirit takes the want away from us over time. And I do think there is such a thing as instantaneous sanctification, but I also know that's not very common. But for most of us, sanctification is a process. My life is a testimony. I used to carry many daily sins with me, deeply rooted, that the Holy Spirit has rooted out of me. I no longer desire them. It's been a wonderful, amazing, liberating thing. Praise God. I hated being a slave to those sins. That's what he does for all those who hold themselves to the standard. And what is the standard for us? The standard is Christ Jesus. And Jesus, was he perfect? Yes. Jesus was made for, I'm paraphrasing this, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for a time. He came, he took the form of a servant, of a slave. He was with us. He showed us the way. He died our death. He suffered for our sakes, purchased our salvation. And then because of his humbling to the point of death, God raised him up and seated him at the right hand of God above all angels. And that's the place where you and I belong now, too. That's what it says. It says he is the firstborn of a large family. That large family is me and you. He purchased us to be up there with him. But the thing is, if we are not holy as he is holy, then we're not worthy to be up there, are we? 
Now, if it's up to us to pursue our own holiness, we can't do it. But what if we have the Holy Spirit within us? What then? Does that change anything? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit, God's grace, is more powerful than my sin. Does anybody here know that? Do you know that God's grace is more powerful than your sin? Do you know that you've been bought at a price and that demands a response from you? That you give up on yourself, give up on your sin, take up your cross, suffer for his name's sake to the point of death so that you might live eternally at his side? Do you know that God is faithful and will reward you for every drop of blood of sweat that you shed for his name's sake? Here the promise in Hebrews is that Christ has already done the majority of the work. We just need to take up his yoke and follow alongside him. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke of oxen, when you have a team of oxen, you can have one doing all the work and the other just walking alongside him. That's me and you. We don't have to be the pioneers of our salvation. We already have one. Jesus pioneered the way forward for us. That was some language we just had in there. We just have to follow alongside him. Now what it, it warns us here, and this is what I put on the cover of the bulletin, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And the warning from Scripture is that we can, and many do, actually drift away. There are people who are close, who have a right understanding of themselves with God, but they don't remind themselves. They don't allow themselves to be reminded. They forget. They receive the lies of the world again, and they lose what Christ has given them. There are some people in the Reformed tradition. I, I heard a quote from John MacArthur one time. I really loved it. If we could lose our salvation, we would. That's what he says. We're so messed up. We don't know a good thing when we got it. We would. The, and I totally agree when the Holy Spirit is not part of the equation. But when the Holy Spirit is in us, then that means that we can choose to work with God. The Philippians language is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If there was no work to be done, and if there was nothing to be lost, it would not tell us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That makes no sense. But if we need regular reminder, lest we fall away, and we can fall away, then we need these reminders. And this is not, this is far from the only place in the New Testament that says, stand fast. Remember, we need these reminders, brothers and sisters. That's a big part of what we're doing here. In your daily lives, maybe some of you are reminding yourselves at home, but Martin Luther said, I need to be reminded of the good news every day because every day I forget. And that's one of the things that Satan does. He needles his way into your brain and he makes you more concerned about other things so that someday you wake up and you don't even see yourself as a child of God anymore. You just see yourself as a mouth to feed, a body to satiate. And that's when Satan has you entirely. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, which you can find on page 1573 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard 
that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everybody in our culture loves the second part of that because our culture loves children. Our culture sees children as pristine and cute and then the world screws them up. The scriptural weaknesses, yes, they're cute, but no, they're not pure and perfect when they come out. They're born in sin like everybody else and in need of salvation and redemption. Ancient cultures also thought their children were cute, but they were harsher on their children than we are. We coddle our children. In ancient cultures, up until very recently, all over the world, uh, things akin to anybody ever heard the saying, children are meant to be seen and not heard? That's, I think that's an English tradition uh, from Great Britain, but uh, many cultures have that same sentiment with children. Children are uncouth, untrained, uneducated, unrefined. They don't have anything to offer. They don't have wisdom, experience. They don't have influence or friends. They don't have uh, anything to offer. You know, when we're looking to build a church, are we looking to get a bunch of kids in here or are we looking to get a bunch of people with money and influence and friends you know most churches are looking for the money and influence and friends that's that's how you get by in a worldly sense right but jesus is another worldly person and here you have these children yes they're uneducated uninformed they might be rascals they might be un, not behaved well but they're coming to him for blessing the disciples say nope nope no children necessary here and jesus gets indignant he's indignant he says let them come to me and he blesses them. He says, it's only people like these that can enter the kingdom. If you don't have the mind of a child, you're not welcome in the kingdom. Now, what's he saying here? Is he saying that we have to be immature to get in? Is he saying we need to be uh, ill-experienced? Is he saying the kingdom of heaven is only for young people? I mean, I'm, I'm lifting up all the ridiculous things. Is he saying we need to be really cute? Aw, shucks, you know, little alfalfa. He sure was cute on little rascals, you know. Uh, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people of low or no estate who are humble, who don't have anything of their own to offer. You know, there are some people that they live in such a way where I really think they're going to come up to the gates with St. Peter and go, aren't you lucky to have me here now, St. Peter? I was a big guy on earth, and now you get to have me in heaven. You know, some people really think a lot of themselves. Jesus is saying, they're not welcome in my kingdom. It's only those with the humility of a child that get to enter into here, who know that they're the blessed ones, not me. Now, the first part of this reading is a lot harder because we live in a culture where divorce is very normalized. And a lot of people, I mean, are told all their life that divorce is a good thing and it needs to happen. The scriptural witness does not give ground for that. And I know we have divorced people within our assembly, some who 
look at this and go, why, Jesus? I, I don't see anything wrong with it. And the first thing to say is, there are a lot of things in the Bible that our consciences do not tell us are wrong, but they're wrong. You know, just because my heart doesn't tell me it's wrong doesn't mean anything. My heart's messed up. You know, two, there is something in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, if your partner has committed infidelity, has cheated on you, then you can terminate the marriage. But that's, that's not something we should hang our hat on. And here's the thing. We've already talked about suffering. And can marriage be a, a, a relationship that causes suffering? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. You know, I've got the best wife in the world, but sometimes she's made me suffer, guys. You know? And I'm not even the best husband in the world, but I've made her suffer like it's not right. It shouldn't have happened, but she stuck with me. And here's the thing. We are made to be to each other what Christ is to us. So anytime we're looking at a relationship of ours, the starting place is not what are they doing to me and what do I deserve? The question is, who is Christ and what does he deserve? So let, let's ask two, they're not really connected questions. Let's be clear on the front end. Did Jesus ever get married in his life here on earth? No, he never did. If you read the Da Vinci Code and you're not with me, Da Vinci Code is propaganda, Satan-rooted, ugly, nasty, it's not good. Throw that out. Jesus was not married. We don't need to co-opt our Savior. Jesus was not married. He didn't have sex. Why do people hate that? They want to believe that sex is something essential for a happy life, a holy life. They want to believe it's always good and a life without sex is just so sad. And that's not the scriptural witness. Sex is something off to the side. It's not essential to a good life. And in fact, a lot more times it causes suffering than good things. People need to be aware of this. Sex causes all kinds. That's why the Bible is so concerned with our sexual behavior. Sex causes all kinds of suffering. Usually, it's only within the strict confines of a man-woman uh, relationship to the point of death, exclusive, based around building up the world in Christ. That's the only case in which sex is okay. The rest of the time, it's not. And we want to hear sex is good. God made us to have sex. We all need to have sex. We need to get... That's a message from Satan. Life is not about sex. And you're, if you want to be close to God and have a happy life, let me counsel you. If you're not already, don't get married. Paul says it. Don't get married. There are all kinds of concerns that come in. If there's any way that you cannot get married, not have sex, do it. With me, you know, Paul says if you're burning with desire, then you have to do it because otherwise you're going to act up. You get your one person. But life is not about having sex. It's not about being married. You can be close to God. In fact, you're probably going to be closer to God if you don't get married and have sex. People don't like this message, but a lot of you, when you're thinking about your sexual history, you know I'm right. It's oftentimes more of a threat than it is a help. Now, the second thing is, does Christ have a bride? The church is the bride. Does he have a faithful, loving, good bride? Are you? Let's be very honest, Mary. Let's be very honest. Are you and I always faithful to Jesus? Or are there days where we fall into sin? I know what well, we all try to be. If, but you've heard that saying, good intentions pave the road to hell, right? How many people are trying to be a bad person? Nobody's trying to be a bad person. Everybody's trying to be good. If trying was all it took, we'd all make it. Jesus doesn't say, try to follow me. He says, follow me, right? But let's just go ahead. Everybody better raise your hand. How many of us are a bad spouse to Jesus sometimes? 
We are. When you look at the bride of Christ, we're divided. We're selfish. We're materialistic. We turn on each other. We turn on ourselves. We justify sin. We turn against each other. We're not a good bride. Regularly, Christians engage in idolatry. And if you read your Bible, idolatry is adultery with God. God has an adulterous spouse in us. But does God give up on us? Does he divorce us? Does he leave the marriage covenant because he's got a bad wife? No, he doesn't. And that's what can give us strength to stay in miserable relationships this side of heaven. And not just marriage. When you read your scriptures, you understand that the scriptures are not about justifying leaving covenant relationships. The scriptures are about sanctifying corrupt relationships. And that's what peacemaking is. That's what Christ has put us on earth to do. And so I, I totally understand that I've been very blessed and privileged in my marriage, and a lot of people have really had it rough, and, and I hate that for people. But I think the ministry of the church is not to bless divorce. Our, the ministry of the church is to do everything we can to bless marriages and hold them together and sanctify them. And when they fall apart, not to condemn, but to weep. Because I believe Jesus weeps. If I've offended you, I don't take joy in that. I don't like offending anybody. I don't think Jesus liked offending anybody. I think the truth is just the truth. And we have to make of it what we will. And those of you who are divorced, you, you know me. I've had relationships with all you. know I love you. You know I want good for you. And you know I don't have a heaven or hell to put you in. It's God alone who judges. But as we're talking about the kind of church we want to be going forward, I like to imagine a future where we have just lots of married couples in here that are supporting one another, that we're praying over, that we're supporting. And when they come along hard times, the church can pray for them, can help them, can, can minister to them. Look, I had a hard time in my marriage too, just like yours. Let me tell you how I got through it. Because oftentimes people are just so isolated, they don't know how to get through it until they just got to get out of it. And that's just, I understand if that's out in the world, but in the church, that shouldn't be the case. We should support one another in our covenant relationships. And I want to thank you for supporting me and Sarah Beth and mine. We obviously like each other. We keep making these kids. And it's a wonderful thing to raise them in a, in a household of God like this, where people do seek to hear God's word and respond to it. And no, we're not perfectly matching up to God's word yet, but we're aiming there together, aren't we? That was a softball one. We're aiming there to, to, to conform to God's word together, aren't we? That's the project. So even if it's not right with our hearts right now, let me just say a quick prayer. Lord, Send your Holy Spirit and make your word sit right in our hearts so that we don't find ourselves at odds with you. Even if we don't feel right about it, help us to follow anyway so that we can experience that union with you that surpasses all peaceful understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.